Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 430, and our guest today is Gabriel from Ivory Holsters. Gabriel sent me an email back in the summer of 2018, and at the time he was just a small local business making custom Kydex holsters in his garage part-time. He had some questions for me about using holsters on our packs, and we began a conversation and ultimately ended up prototyping some holster designs built specifically for pack use, and then released those holsters, I should say Gabriel released those holsters at the end of 2018, and he's been selling them ever since. They are by far my favorite holster solution for pack use. We don't have any affiliation with Gabriel, no commission, no like business relationship at all, other than Gabriel makes the best holster for our packs, and he's a great dude, and we're happy to recommend him. All that said to say, we catch up with Gabriel five years later. We talk a little bit about the holsters up front, but really, I reached out to Gabriel to hear about his elk hunt from this fall. Gabriel had a fun, adventurous elk hunt. It was a tag that he drew in his home state of Colorado for archery season, and it's just a great story. We, again, talk about holsters. We talk about the death hike. Gabriel has done one of the exo death hikes, but he's also been one of the guys who's taken our advice and made his own death hike. And him and a group of friends have done that a couple of times now. So we talk about that experience. We talk about his elk hunts, solo hunting, and just went so many places in this conversation. And there's so much good to pull from it. So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode and this wide-ranging conversation. Check out the links below in the show description if you do want to get in contact with Gabriel, if you want to see the EMG, which just stands for Exo Mountain Gear, the EMG pack holster that he makes. As you'll hear in the episode, he's also making holsters for archery handheld releases, and he makes standard inside the waistband holsters for concealed carry. So he has a lot to offer, even outside of the pack holsters. But again, aside from the holsters, I just hope you enjoy this story as much as I did. There's a lot to pull from it, lessons, entertainment, and more. Thanks as always for tuning in. Let's dive into this conversation. Well, Gabriel, super excited to chat, man. Do you remember when... The last time you're on the podcast was, and I think the only time, correct me if I'm, my memory sucks. Yeah, it was, it had, it was, uh, it had to be like January. It's gotta be like three or four years now. Yeah. Try five. Was it? (laughs) Yeah. I had to look. It was actually December of 2018. So just under five years, which is insane. That's amazing. I did not remember that. Yeah, I didn't. Either. I remember I being on and being like super nervous, but I didn't. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did it over the phone, so it sounded all like like fuzzy and whatever. But now we've yeah, I've to- totally upgraded, as you can hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we were working around like crazy schedules then too, because you were working. I think then you were working at the airport, right? Yeah. Yep. Still at the airport, and then and then you guys had just put out uh, a newsletter. And I remember standing, I, I was in Steamboat when you guys put out the newsletter. You and I had talked and the newsletter went out about the holsters. And uh, 
the phone just started just every time you'd get an order that would come in, it would, it would go bring, bring, bring. And I remember standing, I'm, I'm in a hotel room with my wife in steamboat and that started going off and I was like, we got to get home now. And I was like <laughs> freaking out because you guys had put that out and, and just stuff went crazy after that. So that was, it was, I definitely remember that, uh, that season of ivory. It was pretty cool. Yeah. What a, I, I've never asked you this question. What is, I mean, I know from knowing you and talking a little bit, but like your perspective now, those five years and Phil listeners and like, what's, what's the ride been like? What's changed? Uh, yeah. Where are you at now? I know it's super open-ended, but I just love to hear more about the journey. No, it's, it's, uh, man, we, you and I have to talk numbers at some point, but, um, we, yeah, basically just ever since the the notification went out that you guys put out first five years ago, it's just been absolutely nuts to the point where this last year, it was, I think, June, June of last year, I ended up, uh, basically there was just no, no gas left in the tank. So I was working at the airport full time and probably 50 hours a week. And then I would come home, eat dinner with the four boys and, and Melissa, and then, uh, yeah, go out to the garage and, and hammer on holsters until it was bedtime and then just wake up and repeat, wake up and repeat. And uh, it just got to the point where I didn't have enough gas left in the tank. I, and it was like I needed to either 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 stop with the business or stop with the, the airport. And I just had this uh, this like fear of, of regret. I literally saw myself sitting in my lazy boy at like 65 years of age, just hating myself for not taking the the jump when uh when god had given me the opportunity and so i came home and i was like um i was like sweetheart i think god's calling me to to make the jump and get away from the airport and uh and that was a job of 20 years uh and super stable benefits i mean everything it was like super the, the easiest thing to do would have been to shut down ivory and then run the you know run at the airport until retirement which would have been another whatever 10 15 years um and uh I just had that feeling was like, you, you absolutely hate yourself if you don't, if you don't try this and just see what, what comes of it. And so I, I told her, I was like, I remember sitting on the couch. I was like, I think he's calling me to, to go full time with ivory. And she goes, okay, uh, let's pick a date. And I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> she was incredible. So yeah, we picked a date and it was one of those things where we're like, um, we still weren't 100% sure. Like if this is what we're supposed to do, there's always that little tiny bit of doubt. And I was like, yeah. okay, if uh, I'm talking to God, I'm like, all right, God, if this is what you want us to do, I need you to, uh, if, if this is not, so I was told them, we, we were like, okay, here's the date. If this is not what you want us to do, you got to slap us in the face with it and nothing, nothing happened. So we're like, all right, well, it's time. And sure enough, quit. And it's been, it's been, uh, you talk about the ride. It's been really, uh, tight much much tighter uh than than when i had the you know both jobs but the freedom has been unbelievable mark like the the ability to to be home i have coffee with my wife every morning uh three meals a day with the boys we homeschool so there's you know they're, they're home all the time um i'm literally in the in the garage and they can you know if they need something or whatever i'm there it's just i i didn't realize how freeing it would be not having to uh, wake up and go to the airport every morning, but it's been, it's been unbelievable. Um, I, I don't know if that answers your question or if you wanted to, you know, m more in between, but man, it's just, it's, um, 
far greater than what I ever thought it would be. That's awesome, man. What did, you said that was June this past June or the year before? So like 2022 or 2023? Uh, no, 2022. Yep. Okay. So, so we, we're, like we're almost year, two years. Over in, a year. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Yeah. Apologize. Yeah. It's, oh, okay. it's, uh, yeah. And it's funny cause it was, it was a federal government job. And so I was 19 and a half years in. And so like the, the, the normal cutoff is like the 20 years. That's when you collect your retirement and all that stuff. Um, Although I, I still will collect retirement, but it'll be, you know, when I'm 62 and everybody's like, you're, you're, you're quitting at 19 and a half years. And so the very bottom line is I called the financial gal and I'm like, what's the difference between 19 and 20 years? And she's like, it's really nothing. So she ran the numbers and she's like, it'd be an extra, whatever, hundred dollars a month, you know, mm-hmm. when you, when you finally retire and start collecting. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but it's one of those things people are like, dude, you almost had your 20 and there's this like magic number of 20 in the federal government and yeah it's not as as big of a deal as everybody thinks man that's cool i'm I, i'm partially curious because i don't know like I, I don't i know how you make holsters and i don't know how you make holsters i'm curious yeah. what does efficiency production like scaling are you making holsters the same way you did five years ago when it was a side project or do you have like updated equipment things like that and are more efficient uh we just got more equipment um so instead of one single vacuum former we're running two vacuum former actually three now um but it's uh it's still not as nearly as refined as what it needs to be so i need there's a, a, a process that i'm working on to try and and basically come up with a it'll allow me to form each half of the shell and then just use a router to zip them out as opposed to right now there's a ton of like custom hand sanding and um stuff like that that goes on which is not it's just not sustainable in the current form uh, i just haven't had the time or made the time because i keep i keep doing other stuff i got a another project i want to tell you about that i'm a matter of fact i'm going to send you some stuff real shortly here i'm so excited but we did we did since we started doing the release holsters um i bought two cnc machines uh little guys uh, it's like a CNC router. And so I've got those running, being able to help significantly as opposed to doing all that stuff by hand. Um, and then the, the product is much more consistent and it's, it's, you know, pretty well perfect every single time. And so those are, have been a huge upgrade um, for that. I, I can't use those yet for like the EMG holsters, but for the release holsters, those have been a godsend, uh, so, which, and it's totally out of my, my wheelhouse. Like I, I have my, um machinist my cnc guy send me a file and i'm like send me the file so that it routers out this and he'll send the file and then i make sure the trim board is set properly and and there's no i don't do any like cad or cam or any any kind of design work at all i'm just pay a guy to do it and make sure the machine runs properly but man those are Mm -hmm. those are those are huge so three vacuum formers two cnc routers um and then just the normal stuff that you've seen like on, on Instagram, belt sander and bandsaw and all the rough cutting and stuff like that still. But there's a new new process coming. And so uh, it just takes time and money. That's all. So I'm working on that so I can basically teach a donkey how to do it. And then I can kind of, you know. Because you have train. four donkeys, right? Right. I do. I have four. <laughs> they don't want to work, but yeah, they can. Yeah. So you mentioned release holster, just to clarify for 
listeners who may not know, you're talking archery releases like handheld releases, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and we're, what, we're I know ahead. you make those for like some of the knock on releases, but what all what all do you offer release wise? Is that a bunch of different models or no, so right this second as we speak, the only one that, that we have is that I, I say that, I take it back. The, the knock-on ones, so we sell those to knock-on and they sell directly through their site. So you can't even, I don't sell so those not at on all. your site, okay. Correct. But I did just uh, within the last, since I got back from this hunt, just came out with, I, I got the forms and the CNC machines running hot and that's what I'm going to send you. I came up with a, it's a new release holster um, for the three finger, the Carter three finger releases. And as of right now, it'll work for at least four of their releases, their three fingers. So like the wise choice, first choice, the chocolate addiction. Um, and then I think it's it's called the two, two simple, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, minimum it'll work for those four. Um, but anyway, I sent, I sent a few of those to the guys at Carter to have them you know, test and, and stuff like that. But, uh, markets, I've not been this excited since the EMG holster. It's, it's amazing. It's got adjustable retention and it, you can mount it either vertically or horizontally. So, you know, the, the Molly panel on the shoulder strap of the XO, mm-hmm. you can, you can mount it vertically to that, uh, or obviously put it on a belt or whatever you want. This, the thing is it's, it's so stinking cool. And that's awesome. If you're, yeah, if you're a Carter release guy, it'll hopefully work for, you know, which the more the more popular releases. So yeah, it's it's uh, I, I got a few on the bench. One one is for you. I thought you said at one point you ran a Carter. Yeah, I do have one. I mean, I have multiple releases, but I do have a Carter. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you'll have you'll have one in the mail shortly here. Nice but that man. that I'm super excited about. It's it's so refined and it's just I'm I'm pretty pretty stinking proud of it. You, you and I worked together on the EMG holster, like a pack holster, yeah. and to address what I thought were some of the, not problems, but like up up until we made the EMG holster, I didn't, you know, there wasn't a pack specific holster. And so in my head, it was just like, hey, there's all these holsters on the market you can put on a pack. They work, they attach, they're functional, but like with some tweaks, this would be you know, here's some ideas that I think would make a pack specific holster better. And that's essentially what, you know, I mean, you made it, but I just <laughs> kind of ranted at you about some ideas. They've done well. It's been cool to see. I'm curious, like, what is, have you made changes to them? Like, really, I think fundamentally they're relatively no. similar to what you made five years ago. Not, not at all. The, the one that the final version that you and I came up with, um, and and to your your point, your thing was like stability. I just don't want it flopping around. That was, I think, your main thing was to because we yeah we worked on single point of of uh, what do you what do you want to call it retention on the bell versus two points. And yeah, it was I, I, since then uh, it has not changed. The I think I changed the the jig that it's made on to make it more consistent. But outside of that, it's it's the exact same holster as as you and I came up with. Um, it hasn't hasn't changed a lick since what are popular models right now for for emg holsters like and what i'm getting at i guess is not so much talking about our packs or talking about your holsters but more talking about the firearms are you still seeing a ton of like 10 mils or what what is really popular like if you had to off the top of your head the top three to five 
models that you make a holster for? Yeah, for sure. The, the 10 mils have gotten so popular and for a while it's, and it's still the Glock 20 is by far the number one. Um, but the, so since, since then Springfield has come out with one Smith and Wesson and, uh, SIG came out with that X10 and, and those have just gone, uh, kind of gangbusters, the 10 mils guys, guys in the backcountry just, there's a ton of comfort, I would say, and value and having like 16 rounds of super hot 10 millimeter. Um, and so they're, they're just buying them up. So the, the top models would be the Glock 20, the Springfield XDM. They make three or four different sizes of 10 millimeter that Springfield does the, uh, Smith and Wesson. They make two different sizes, a four, six barrel, and then a four O barrel. And those are, those are super popular too. And then the X10, and then after that, I think it's probably probably the Glock 19, just because everybody seems to have one. Um, and I would I would say that even even in a nine mil like the Glock 19 is, you, you still got some of this ammo is so incredible. Like as far as like penetration and speed and um, capacity, that that a lot of guys are just like, you know what, I'm I'm feeling without having to go buy a new 10 millimeter pretty darn comfortable carrying 16 rounds of some of these um even the solid copper or solid brass rounds they're they're uh just getting such amazing penetration in in some of them i've seen some of them zip through bulletproof glass it's incredible hmm. um and so so uh yeah those are probably the top the top five i would say those four 10 mils and then the glock 19 and then you know it goes into like some of the smaller stuff too the shield has always been real popular the Smith and Wesson shield. So yeah, it's those I would say are the top ones. Do you personally carry like, we're getting ready to talk about a, an elk hunt in your uh, home state there. Do you carry on a hunt like that? I did. Yeah, I do. I do for a couple of reasons. One is more like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta, you can't exactly sell a product without being out there and, and using <laughs> and it. Using it. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think so the unit I was in this year, uh, they had a horrible winter kill for the bears. And it sounds like the winter was so bad that basically the bears just didn't, didn't come back out of hibernation. They died. I'm hearing up to, um, and not in the unit I was in, but the adjacent unit was like 80% is what the division division was saying to some of the hunters. I know up there, 80% of the, they didn't find anything. And it it made sense because when we were up there, we saw two, maybe three, um, piles of bear scat and that was it and they were small so so i'm not super concerned about bears but there's there's always like you don't you don't know there's always could be some weirdo in the woods i just get a sense of comfort so i was for a long time carrying the the glock 20 on the k3 and i wore the k4 this year and i, I figure like I can, I can go lighter so i carried the um the xd no i'm sorry it's the 365 xl that nine mil Oh yeah. Uh, with the That's 17 sweet. round mag and it, it's, it's so nice. It's light. Uh, yeah. I stink and love that thing. And that's my like quote daily carry gun as well. So yeah, it's nice to be able to just, you know, switch back and forth. If I was going into grizzly country, I'd definitely take the one of the 10 mils for sure. But yeah, carried mm-hmm. it all season long. Matter of fact, I carried and <laughs> we did a death hike here in uh, Colorado like, a couple of months ago and I carried the, the 20 on that just to, to mount it to the K4 and kind of see how it felt and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, just a constant work in progress and trying to figure out how to make it, you know, lighter or more comfortable or more stable or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. 
Are you do, do you do optic cuts for like those 10 mils? Yeah. Yeah. We don't right now don't do anything in the way of like, um, like lighted rigs, but I am working on something, uh, right now actually, uh, to make, make it, make us able to, to build holsters for some of those bigger frame revolvers and then lighted rigs, but they're, they're not. So back to the EMG, they're not all cut for an optic, uh, just standard, but, but a lot of times I'll just have the customer put in the notes section when they make the order that they've got an optic on it. And yeah, we trim it down and, um, make sure that it's able to clear those optics. Yeah. Are you running an optic on yours? Not right now. I've toyed with it. I'm just was somewhat curious, A, if you're doing it and B, do you feel like that's getting more popular? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, the it's it's funny. There was a guy that he's a guide. <clears throat> excuse me, he's a guide in New Zealand, and he actually wrote me an uh, an article uh, after using the holster. Super kind, kind person. Um, but he was talking about how, as a guide, he has an optic on his gun, and he got so much like uh, like debris and and just crap on the optic that he is fully sworn off optics in the backcountry now obviously like on your carry gun or you know range gun or whatever your precision precision pistol shooting stuff you, you cannot you, you just can't shoot any better uh with iron sights than you can an optic and i honestly don't care like who you are you you if you put a red dot on it you're going to shoot better as long as you can practice enough to where you can find that red dot every time but this guy made a really good point about how there were a couple of times where he would, you know, he would draw and, and practice uh, and just couldn't even see the red dot because there was so much crap that had gotten into his red dot. And I know they make some, they've got some uh, fully enclosed models now that are super, super cool. They're, you know, a little pricey, but it's, it looks like a giant box on top of your gun. Mm-hmm. But man, those, those might be the answer. They're uh, fully enclosed to where nothing can uh, interrupt the, the laser or the light. Um, but man, those are, those they're just big and ugly and but yeah. they they work and they're you know for the backcountry guy that might be the ticket versus some of those reflex like open open pieces of glass you mentioned death hike I actually wanted to, to talk a little bit about that before we get into your hunt because i think that i'm assuming i we haven't talked about your hunt so this is like very off the cuff i don't know the details i'm excited with the listeners to hear about it but i think if i had to guess that your experience with death hikes probably helped or influenced your hunt a bit. Oh, it was huge. You're not, uh, typically when we have, we've had people on the podcast to talk about the death hike, they're kind of like, they've generally been part of the crew, like meaning they've done multiple death hikes over the years and things like that, but that hasn't been the case for you. So just what has your experience exposure been to death hikes? Like, both ours as well as you mentioned you guys did some of your own uh i'd love to hear about it oh man it was it was so from what was it Fe- february we were at the salt lake show and then that was when it got really real so it's funny because dione came up and he's like hey you you are uh, you gonna do this thing and i'm like oh yeah I, I would love to but i i'm not quite sure if i got the full invite it's so funny i get all self-conscious and like girly about it but i I, Steve did at one point, I remember sitting, I'm having a margarita and talking to Steve on the phone about the holster. And he's like, Hey man, we got to get you up here for a death hike. And I'm like, Dione, that's, that's all it was. It was like an in passing kind of thing. And Dione's like, no, 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 man, that was definitely an invite. You're good. And I'm like, yeah, right. That's just Steve. That's, that's official. Yeah. Like as casual as that is, that's official. 
Oh, that's so funny. So, so yeah, I ended up going in. And so from February on until the death, I got trained my, my tail off, like to the end that my, my, I've always had like the legs of a 13 year old girl. Like I, I love benching, but man, I hate, I hate leg days. And, and I knew I needed to work it out. And so, so towards, you know, the closer we got to the death, like my wife was like, sweetheart, your legs are looking big. Like, and I was starting to notice it too. And, and, uh, so I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this. And then I saw you, I may, I may stalk you and, uh, Kyle camp on Strava. And so I saw <laughs> you guys were doing like, Kyle's doing like 13, 15, 18 mile runs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get killed on this thing. <laughs> and so I started ramping it up and doing the the runs, like, you know, thinking, okay, well, if they're doing it, that they, they know something I don't. And so I started cranking up the runs. Um, and anyway, uh, when we got there, it was, uh, obviously I was nervous. It was my first time doing one, uh, with you guys. And, and I, I definitely wanted to show up, but, but it was, I was for lack of a better term, I embarrassed myself. It was not, <laughs> I was, I, I thought for a minute, I was like, okay, you, you've been working really hard. You're in decent shape. You, you, you can, you can totally hang. And these guys do when Steve said go, it was just like dust. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> And I don't know if it was, if it was nerves that, that got me. And I, I just, I was breathing heavy and I, I was having a real hard time, you know, trying to keep up. Um, but, but, uh, I was like, there's no way I can keep pace with these guys. I'll, I'll, I can make it, but I'm just going to be a day behind everybody else. Right. And so, right. so that, that was a huge rude awakening for me. Um, although I do take a, a bit of pride knowing that we went over like I was, didn't chicken out on chicken out Ridge. No offense to anybody that did, uh, but, <laughs> But went went over Chicken Out Ridge, which was super cool, and then Bora Summit was amazing. Um, but yeah, man, I just uh, and thank God for Corey Ford because he hung with me the whole time, and we just he's got a very, um, I guess, uh, laid back type of an attitude where he's not like high pressure, like go go go. It's just we're gonna we'll get there, and and so anyway, that one I did not, um, I didn't show up like I I would have liked. And this is me trying to be gentle with myself, but I, I didn't show up like I would have liked. So uh, when we got back to Colorado, we had already planned an ivory one, um, which doesn't have nearly the elevation. It was about 6,600 feet of elevation, but it was 38 miles. Um, and we did kind of an overnighter there. A bunch of cool stuff happened on that one where we got separated, but that helped so much, man. And it's funny because some of the guys I was with, on the Colorado one, we're like, holy crap, dude, you're like a mountain goat. And I'm like, if I'm a mountain goat in this group, like those guys, the, the EXO guys are, are freaking like not even in this world. They're, they're just absolute animals. But my wife, when I got home, so this hunt, I did do, I had a buddy with me, ended up, he had to leave on Sunday. Uh, and I did end up killing and packing this one out solo. And those death hikes helped so much. Um, just the, I think, as I think about it now, more than anything, mentally, they helped me so much uh, to, to be able to do the the solo pack out. Um, just because I, I, I remember, like, talking to myself in the woods, like, dude, you don't have a time limit. There's no, there's no, no reason to rush. Take your time. It's whatever. It's a heavy load you don't have to rush. And there's that thing in me that's like, okay, go, 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 go get the meat off the mountain. You're going to, it's going to spoil all that stuff. And, uh, it just really, really helped with the mental grit portion of it, being able to be by myself for, you know, three days after Kenny had left. And then, um, 
just slow but steady pack it out and just get it done so yeah it's it's more of a mental grit thing if you ask me that helped uh, than it was the physical for sure helped a lot but but the ability to just grit through it and get my head wrapped around the task was was uh much more beneficial you know coming from the death hikes that's what i took from those being the benefit versus the the physical stuff yeah 100 percent, man i agree we've you know, we get people to reach out about the death hike when they hear about us doing it and like want to join and stuff like that. And for a whole bunch of reasons, we can't typically open it up. Like some of that's just logistics, some of it's liability, et cetera, et cetera. But we always encourage people like, hey, just because you can't necessarily join with us on a death hike, don't let that keep you from grabbing some buddies and doing your own. And we've had podcast listeners do that and some stories and stuff like that obviously you're an example of that. Like you've, you've done it. This wasn't the first year you guys did a Colorado one with your own, right? No, we did it. We did one in 2020 and then had to skip a couple, but yeah. 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 And it was exactly what you say. I listened to the, I was listening to the podcast on the death hike and I'm like, that sounds so amazing. And then you were like, well, do your own. And I was like, well, heck yeah, we're going to do it then. And it was like, it was, you know, uh, that's exactly what it was. It was you guys going, Hey, if you can't, you know, be in Idaho or Alaska or whatever, just, just do your own. And so I was like, sweet. So I just sent out a text and I didn't even have to plan the route. I got a buddy that's kind of a, a nerd at that. And so he, he planned out the route and it was, yeah, man, it was, it was awesome. And it's one of those things like you, it, it would have never happened before. It's not anything that would have been even on my radar. Had I not been, had I not known that it existed, right? You guys do this. And I'm like, holy crap, that sounds like fun. I never would have thought of that. I'm not a, like I used to be the kind of guy who's like, I'm not going hiking unless there's like a lake at the top and I can catch fish or there's something to kill or, or yeah. you know, something like that. That's and, a point, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but man, it's, there is a point. And, and I, I'll say that the whole, the camaraderie of it is unbelievable. It's going through hard stuff with other good, like-minded men is, is, uh, undervalued for sure. And so, yeah, I was like super happy when, when we did the first one and it ended up being amazing even though there's those moments where you're like, what the hell are we doing? Why? This is so stupid. Why am I here? Right? Like in those really painful moments, like, well, I'm so dumb. And then, and then you get to the end and you're like, that was amazing. I can't wait to plan the next one. Right. So, you know, the feeling. Yeah, sure. What happened? You said some interesting stuff happened this year with getting separated and whatnot. What, what's the story there? So I had, uh, one of my buddies, one of the like best men I've ever met, super good dude, Mikey. He was up there, and I don't know if it was it was nerves for him or because he packed his bag like as he showed up at the at camp the night before. He threw all of his crap in his bag, and and uh, he was having a really hard time the the first night or, or first first morning, and um, got to a point where we ran almost the same route as we had done in 2020, but I added a six mile loop to it, and so we were at the point where we were about to cut off to go to the six mile loop and he was having a bit of a hard time. And so Kenny and Mike were like, look, we're going to go the normal route that, that neither of them had been. So we're going to go the same route as last year and we'll just meet you after the six mile loop. Well, um, we had taken, so one of my other buddies had taken, um, because Mikey was, was weighted down, we had taken his sleeping bag and sleeping pad from him to lighten his load. And then, we did the six mile loop and we got, we ended up like crazy river crossing, get one of our guys fell in the, in the Creek or in the river. And he hiked the last 25 miles in wet boots. It was horrible for him. Anyway, it was, you know, him though. It was Joel from hunt, hike oh, yeah. harvest. 
Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he fell in the, he didn't want to take the time to, to, uh, put his Crocs on and cross the Creek and instead decided he was going to risk it and, and it did not pay off. And so, so it took us longer to make that six mile loop than what we thought. And so Kenny and uh, or, uh, Mike ended up being at the meeting place for like two hours, an hour and a half. They waited as we were doing this, this six mile loop. And, um, anyway, they, they knew where camp was. So they, they go on their way while we go, we're about 45 minutes behind them based on the note that they had left for us. And so we're trying to catch them, but um, there's a portion where our camp is up at this lake. And so you basically have to come off the main trail, hang a left and go. It's a, it's basically a, a two mile climb to the lake, which is where camp was supposed to be. Well, we're thinking it's starting to get a little dark and we know Mikey doesn't have a sleeping bag or a sleeping pad and they're going to be at camp. So instead of taking the trail down the one mile and then up two miles to get to camp, we actually decided to bushwhack it, which was the dumbest thing we could have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we bushwhack it. Well, we show up there and there's, there's no one there. I, I take it back. There was one tent there and <laughs> it's 10 30 at night. And I walk up to this tent and I go, Kenny. And I hear from inside the tent the guy goes, yeah. And I go, the rest of us are all standing. There's like seven guys are like, yeah, we're all screaming. We're like Kenny's here. <laughs> and the dude from the inside the tent goes, not Kenny. I was like, Oh, sorry, dude. So we, oh. <laughs> we ended up setting up our tents knowing that Kenny and Mike are somewhere else and uh-huh. uh, he doesn't have any of his gear or any of his sleeping gear. So they actually stayed at the 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 T where we were supposed to turn left and go up the two miles and they were waiting for us. And and uh, bottom line, they, they set up camp and Mark, it was the two of them and we know they don't have their gear and we're like, well, it is what it is. Mikey's going to have the worst night of his life and he's never coming with us again. <laughs> And uh, so the two of them climb into one tent. Kenny has his sleeping pad. And it's one of those like super awkward, like, you know, moments where you're like, it's going to get super cold. It's already chilly. Yeah. He's got a mummy bag and Kenny's like, dude, just come on up, like get on the sleeping pad cover. So Kenny's like, I, the one caveat I have is, is I'm taking the, the foot box. So he, Kenny uses the foot box in his mummy bag and throws the, the rest of the, uh, sleeping bag over Mikey and they're like kind of tussling over it. Yeah. He goes, he goes, Gabe, it got to be, I think it was four 30 in the morning. And finally, uh, cause they had been wrestling over it. Finally, I, he, Kenny's laying on his side. He goes, I felt Mikey roll up onto the sleeping pad and put the bag over him. He goes, it was the best two hours of sleep. Either of us had ever had <laughs> <laughs> two dudes, one bag. It was, it was hilarious. And I was like, eh, well, that, Mikey might never ever come back, but but yeah, that last two hours was like the best sleep the two of them had ever had because their body warmth was keeping each other warm, and they had just finally gotten over the awkwardness. Right. And now it's one of those things where they're like, "Dude, if that ever happens again, just crawl into the bag. We're not even going to mess with it. Just it's, I know yeah. it's weird. We're just going to do it." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so good. See how stuff never happens unless you just like, let's go have an adventure. You know? Yes. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I, uh, let's get into the hunt, i.e. what is your last handful of years of hunting looked like? Because I know you've been, you know, you got four kids, you got the business, like all these life changes. I think you primarily just focus on archery elk. Uh, but before we get into this particular hunt, just kind of like fill us in on hunting the last few years for you. Yeah, so we, I, I hunt... 
archery and rifle every year uh, for, for elk. I'm not into deer. Uh, although I have shot a couple of deer, it's fun, but it's not, I just don't, I don't get the same charge out of it. And so archery, elk, uh, and then most of the time that's like super early season. Cause that's when we've had the best luck where the elk haven't had, uh, humans around in the last 11 months. And, and although they're not bugling, they come in silent pretty good. Um, and then rifle season has always been uh, first rifle here in Colorado. So it's like somewhere around October 10th, 11th, 12th, right in there is when it starts. And that normally goes for five days. Um, but that's the same season we've been hunting for the last probably 15 years. And we have really, really pretty decent luck at that too in the unit that we're in. Um, oddly enough, this year we did not draw a first season rifle tag because the winter kill was so bad up where we hunt. Um, excuse me, the, uh, the division shut down just a ton of tags. So two of the guys in our group drew first season rifle tags. And normally you would see legitimately between six and nine trucks at this one uh, draw that we go up. And they were like, dude, there was one single truck there. So I don't know if, if they just didn't issue enough tags or people were turning their tags back in, but the winter kill was super bad this year up, up uh, where we hunt just South of steamboat. And um, so, yeah, we ended up drawing my son and I drew a, it's his first year elk hunting. He just turned 12 uh, four days ago. And so it's his first year elk hunting. He, we both drew fourth season rifle tags. So I'm doing everything I can to try and keep this 80 pound skinny little 12 year old as warm as I possibly can in late November. <laughs> and that's not, but, but yeah, that's, that's the, the gist now is, is I hunt uh, normally a week for, uh, for archery and then a week for rifle. And my wife is amazing, man. It, I, I, and for whatever it's worth, for anybody that's listening out there, talk to your wife like in April when the game regs come out and talk to her about what you want to do as opposed to just assuming that she knows. And then when September comes around, you're like, well, see ya. Because it's it's been such... Uh, I, I have not been great about communicating, but dude, it's it's so much better when I talk to her in April as opposed to like, well, I thought you knew I do this every year. You're just supposed to know that I'm leaving in October <laughs> and September. Yeah. And that's totally on me. So yeah, it's, uh, it, and it is, it's tough. I, I promised myself when I started the business, I was like, yeah, I will not, uh, I will not sacrifice my hunt for someone else's hunt. Meaning I won't, I'll work really, really hard up up to the time where it's time to hunt to try and make sure we're well within the lead time and get the holsters out and all that stuff. But I do get stressed about business and lead times and stuff like that. And there's that thing in me that's like, you, you only have so many Septembers. You, you told yourself you weren't, you weren't going to sacrifice. And so I've tried to, and I've done a pretty good job of doing that. Although the work up to that point is, um, is just gangbusters, but, but yeah, it's, uh, trying to do a, an archery and a rifle hunt every year. And it is to your point, like archery is where my heart is for sure. If you told me I had to give up my rifle or my bow, you could take the rifle for sure. The archery is just, there's nothing like it. What you just said about like the business and that kind of pressure, cause there's always going to be the last minute people who want to be able to order a holster a week before their hunt or whatever, which is also a week before your hunt. Right. right. Um, but it's funny cause it reminds me of, the tip you gave with your wife like it's the same communication of you doing the best you can you're not going to reach everybody but with your customers being like hey here are the lead times here's the best time to order if you order after this date it's going to be really tough to get a holster you know within whatever that lead time is etc so those two uh 
communication aspects are helpful for your wife and your customer. Yeah, you're right. They go hand in hand for sure. So yeah, roll us into this hunt. I knew like you gave us the short version. You were hunting with a buddy, ended up filling a tag solo, but even before the success, all that, like what was that early part of the season? What time of year were you hunting? How did things kick off? All the good stuff. Yeah. So we, we, I, I actually didn't draw the archery. So I put in for its unit. Should I, should I say the unit? Does it matter? Uh, no, I mean, you said enough about where it was. People can draw okay. conclusions. So it, it was a, it was a nine, a nine point unit. Um, uh, and so I'd never hunted anything outside of just an over the counter, over the counter unit before. And so my wife is like, all right, you got take your time. Like you, here's, here's the two weeks that you, you know, it's, it's the rut, do what you need to do. She's, she's incredible, man. Um, so we, we had slotted it from the 17th through the 30th of September uh hoping that we wouldn't need all that time and uh so yeah it was 17th got in and uh it was me and uh buddy my my buddy kenny we pulled the camper up and just the two of us were up there and he didn't have a tag obviously because again it was a night i say obviously i guess it's possible that he could have but he didn't uh so it was one tag and he was just up there to kind of you know be there to help pack out and and uh just help in whatever way he could um make sure that I don't botch a shot and then stuff like that. And so, so, uh, we got there and they were on, I mean, like it was, it was amazing. We, you couldn't, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hearing a bugle up there. It was unbelievable. I've never and heard anything like it. September 17th. 17th. Okay. Yeah. And then, so like 17th, 18th, and then I would say morning of the 19th, <clears throat> excuse me. They were, they were totally on, uh, we did do some some uh, night bugling, uh, like we go out at whatever ten thirty at night and just hit some of the draws. And almost every draw, we were we were hearing responses. Uh, thank you, Paul Medell. That that dude that has been such a game changer in the way of like being able to find elk going at night and the road bugling is is amazing. And so we did that. Found quite a few elk um, that way. And then, like I said, the, by the third day. I don't know if it was hunting pressure or I don't, I don't know what it was. There wasn't a whole lot of hunting pressure up there, but um, something like shut them down pretty good. Cause they were, they were talking the first two days solidly, even in the middle of the day. Uh, and we had a couple of encounters where, but we had one that kind of surprised us on, on opening morning. He, he, we were going after one bull and this guy was in between the two of us and we didn't know it until he was on top of us. And I never got to see him, but he bugled and, and, uh, I made a move and I'm sure he saw me and he boogered off cause it just got super silent after that. And then we, you know, the wind starts swirling at nine o'clock, nine thirty, and basically just forces me to, to like sit down and, and babysit an elk until the wind gets right again. And so it's a lot of like coffee and snacks <laughs> in the middle of the day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they were, I don't know what it was, man, that turned them off, but they were, they had shut down after day three, at least shut down during the day. Um, and then, uh, so we'd had a couple of encounters there, never got to, to actually even, uh, draw on one. Um, and then, and then after, I think it was, I had a, a friend that lives in junction and he came up and, uh, he's the one that actually gave us a bunch of the intel. I, I, it was amazing how many people came out of the woodwork when they when they found out that we were hunting this unit. I had like uh, guys just going over the top to try and help us with like 
spots and intel and there's like residents in the area and they're trying to help us it's just unbelievable the amount of guys that just want to help on on a, a unit like that um and so my my buddy that lives down there came came out and uh helped us scout and um man i've i was so skipping pretty pretty far ahead to like the getting to it portion we went i was hunting some some like thicker tall timber um aspen stuff pretty high i think we were at probably 9500 feet of elevation stuff like that and then i had never hunted these stinking pinions before you ever hunted pinions not too much no i mean i've been in them a little bit but not i would say i've hunted them a lot yeah it's it's super foreign to me because i'm i'm used to like the dark timber you know like no no farther than a 40 yard shot uh Anyway, we get my, my friend who actually runs a guide service in, in Junction um, took me to this spot where he and his daughter had had uh, scouted out some elk that were on private, but it was adjacent to this this public. So we were on private. We get to this these like pinion flats and um, he spots a giant. Uh, I think we, we ranged him and then I used Onyx too to, to mark him out. I think it was. 1.14 miles on this like flat like there was farmland and anyway and so he's like well let's see if he he responds and so he breaks out his bugle and and rips off this and it was it's one of the um like primos pack pack bugles too which i i like to give people hell over but it, it's apparently stinking works this bull when he he ripped off that bugle completely turned and ran at us for like four minutes it took him uh, no, it was probably even more than that. It might've been like six minutes. It took this elk, but he came in on a string from over a mile mark. It was unbelievable. Dang. And we watched him through the glass and I've never seen tails like I've seen on this guy. Uh, it, it was unbelievable. His, his rack was so stinking big. Um, he ended up coming up the hill and, and meanwhile, there's, there's, uh, other bulls bugling right around us. Right. So at one point we had what I would imagine is the herd bull sitting under this cliff and these pinion pines with, um, and he's just every time another bull bugles, he's ripping off, but he is not moving. So I got to imagine he's stuck up in there with a bunch of cows, which make, is weird because the, the bull that's coming into us is so big. I can't imagine him being a satellite, but it was, it was incredible. So he came in from a mile away, bugled his way in, got to within 50 yards of us behind these stinking pinions and i i actually had my bow up and i was ready to come to full draw i just needed him to stick his head out and andy my friend is is cow calling and and you know and he's getting the responses there's two other ones that are start bugling you know a little farther away from us it was like a triangle and that guy would not would not stick his head out it was it was the weirdest thing and i was like oh well, he's gone because he got quiet for a minute and after about five minutes because of the other bulls that were bugling in that triangle formation, he did pipe off again. And he was standing in that same exact spot behind that same exact pinion. Although I couldn't see him, he just would not come out. Um, it, it was heartbreaking. And Andy was like, Gabe, I felt it in my bones that that guy was going to come out. Uh, that was a, that was a dead bull and he just wouldn't do it. And so I had not, not a whole lot of experience in the pinions. Not that it matters. It's all, it's all elk hunting. Um, yeah. So how did that encounter actually end? Uh, it, it got quiet and the wind started to swirl and we were like, we got to get out of here. So it hit like okay. nine, so nine o'clock, nine thirty. We had to back out. Yeah. 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 And I think he had boogered off before then anyway. 
Uh, and if I'm honest, I don't know if if he circled us and cut our track. I know he he was he did not wind us like solidly, mm-hmm. but it makes me wonder if he went around us and cut our track and maybe smelled our our prints or whatever on the way in. I don't know. Um, but then I was like, okay, well, this is where I'm spending the rest of the time. So I go I go back out. Andy had to go to work. I come back in that night. Same thing happened. Different different bull. I never got to see him, but another bull came in from a different spot. Got right behind a pinion, fifty yards away. Would not come out. So I'm like, this is killing me. So I same thing. I, I wait till dark. I, I cut out. I come back that same spot the next morning, and do the same exact thing. And now a third bull has come in. Uh, he's a little higher up on this flat, and uh, same thing. And I was even I was trying hard, like. I'm like, I'm going for broke. I started, you know, kind of moving my way toward him while calling. And um, same thing, man. He just, he hung up and could not. So it's three bulls now in the same vicinity that I just could not get to come out for that shot. So that was when I decided, uh, you know, when the wind started to swirl, I was like, all right, I'm getting off of this this flat. I, if You know, I want to save it for later if I need to. And so anyway, I boogered out um, because of the wind. And I was like, I'm going to give that spot a break. And that's that's when that that evening I went into this, uh, it's like a two mile draw, <clears throat> where I shot this this bull. Um, so I, I really wanted to kill one in the pinions, especially with as big as those guys were. And it's funny because we, we talked about goals before. You know, you want to be realistic with your goals. Uh, you know, Kenny and I had talked about goals before. He's like, well, What do you what do you what's your goal? It's a nine. Took you nine years to draw this tag. What do you want? And I was like, Well, I got. I got, uh, what is it, a four by four, two fives, and a six on the wall. I would really love to get a seven, like bad. Um, and f- <laughs> I know they're in there. Uh, yeah, I, I won't go too much deeper into that, but but uh, the gist was I'm I'm gonna try for something big, a seven, unless it's a. And then you start looking through pictures, and and you know Kenny's sending me pictures. He's like, well, this guy's only a six. What happens if he walks out? And I'm like, oh, that guy's dead, right? Yeah, like, right. Oh, this guy's only a five. What happens if he walks? Out? I'm like, that guy's got to die. Yeah, because right? they're just so much bigger than anything we've seen. And so uh, I will say I'm pretty darn proud to say it, especially since we killed one on day the second morning. We had a we had a five by five. I we were calling and this five by five came in with a cow matter of fact we i think we must have bugled and we were on top of him before before he even knew it but he had this really weird weak uh like growly bugle and um to the point where we heard him and i turned around to look at kenny and i was like is that a hunter and i see his eyes just get huge because he's looking right through me and this really pretty little five by five with a cow is is coming you know, through the brush coming towards us. And so he ducks down and he's got one of those 360 cameras. So we got some really great video of it, but he came into like 20 yards, less than 20 yards. And, uh, that cow winded us first and then he winded us. And I didn't even come to full draw, which I should have just for practice, but I was super nervous. I was seeing, and I had the time to count the points and I was like, yeah, I'm not day two, nine years. I'm not, I'm not shooting him yet. Right. So that's yeah. beautiful little five by five. So it's the first time in my life I've ever passed on a legal animal. So, it's, and then it's funny because probably six, seven days in, I'm like, dude, should you have shot that thing? Like, what, right. if you go home with either, you know, with nothing, you're going to, you'll never forgive yourself for not shooting that five by five because he was pretty. And, uh, so yeah, that, that was going through my head, you know, five, six days in and, and, uh, 
but it ended up obviously working out. So I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't shoot the five by five on day two because, uh, Kenny would have kicked me super hard and I probably would have kicked myself, you know, knowing that we still had you know, 12 days to go, but right. Yeah. When it's not only the, it's not only the fact that you end up shooting something bigger. It's the fact that you got to have the more experiences, the more days in the field, the story of that giant bull coming in a mile, like none of that would have happened if you were just filled that tag early. You're, you're hundred percent right. That's exactly what Kenny was saying too. We got, and I got to spend, you know, six days in the woods with, you know, my BFF. And, and so, you know, sit in the camper and just, just doing guy stuff, which is, it's just rejuven, rejuvenating to the soul. And I know it's not just guys that do it. So I don't mean that, but man, it's just, I, I need it more than I think I do. I come back a better person from this. And I know you've, you've had guys on that have said that same thing, but it's, it's absolutely true. I'm a better person throughout the year when I get to go and do stuff like this. Uh, and so being able to do that for six days with a, you know, a good buddy of mine and um, it's just rejuvenating. It's great for the soul. Although I, man, I'm starting to really like solo. I really like it a lot. Which is this your was this your true first solo hunt? Because I know you hunt with buddies all, like a lot. Yeah, this one. So I've hunted hunted solo before, but I never killed anything solo. Uh, okay. Yeah, so this was the first successful I'm solo. I think successful solo hunt. Yeah. So he left on Sunday. I went back in uh, for those those three because he'd he'd been gone for I think three days. I shot him on Wednesday. Oh, was it? Even before killing the bull, was it uh, the first 24 to 48 hours of being solo? Was that a hard transition after being with people for, you know, a week? Not at all. No, I I, uh, I had done it before once. And it was that was a hard one. Like, that, the, honestly, part of the reason that I do the, like, the death hiking and I do little stuff throughout the year is because I know I'm weak in the in the head. <laughs> like I I uh, I I'm not as mentally gritty as some of my good buddies that are just they can grin through anything and just go and and so I I have to work at that. When you said little stuff throughout the year, what do you mean? Like uh like a fasting um just to try and and build up mental grit or or one that's been really good that people laugh at me for is like cold showers. I'm like I. I know that my first solo hunt, I was slotted for, I don't know, six days, seven days or whatever. And I ended up basically talking myself off the mountain because I was like, oh, my, you know, my wife's at home with the kids by herself. I miss my boys. My, my, my boys must miss their daddy, right? There's, she's, she's going through a hard time. I'm sure of it. She could really use her husband home and all this stuff that goes through my head to where I'm like, okay, well, I, I end up talking myself off the mountain a day or two days earlier than what I, what I should. And that's just, that's just weakness in, in, in my head. It's just me being weak and wanting to, to go back to the comforts of life. And so I'll do things like the death hike is one of them. Uh, that's a big deal that helps to build up the mental grit, but cold showers have <laughs> that just forcing yourself to take a, especially if you're not one of those guys that takes a cold shower every day, like forcing yourself to, to take a cold shower or do a fast or something hard where you have to basically consciously overpower your your mind and your body to go no i'm forcing us to do this or i'm forcing myself to do this in an effort to be more mentally gritty and so those things as silly as they might sound have have helped uh pretty significantly yeah it's not silly and i would say it's uh like it's 
it's a bit of a muscle. You have to use it or lose it. And so you can't just rely on one big thing a year and then just be engaged in comfort, you know, the other 50 plus weeks of the year. Like it is the small things throughout the year, I think are really important because you have to stay engaged with making those decisions. I mean, it's even, it's funny you say that. I wasn't thinking about this till you just said little things throughout the year, but uh, actually just yesterday, my son has a late start for school uh, on Wednesdays. And so my schedule is different that morning because I take him to school. So he has a late start. So I was like, on Wednesdays, I've just been going for a walk in the neighborhood, like separate from my workout, just walk in the neighborhood. And I went outside yesterday and I didn't know it was supposed to rain, but it was raining. And immediately I was like, oh, I won't go for a walk. It's raining. And then right away I was like, why would you not go for a walk just because it's raining? Like you've been wet before. You spent, you know, 10 days in Alaska in miserable weather. Like why can you not walk around the neighborhood when it's raining? But it was like, it's just so funny how our default, like we're presented with a minor level of discomfort and we have the luxury to avoid it. We just want to avoid it. And so right away I was like, no, I'm going for a walk. Like, why would I not go for a walk? But as soon as I opened the garage and saw it was raining, I was like, oh, no, I shouldn't go for a walk. It's raining, you know? And it's like just those little things throughout the year and like all the decisions we make, you just have to, it's crazy how intentionally you have to be to not always make the comfortable choice. 100%. Yeah. I, you, you sparked it in my head. I remember hearing a podcast. You, I think you did it with Russ Meyer. He was talking about, uh, he knew he, cause the guy works out like, like 18 times a day, but he's, but he's, uh, he's talking about how it was snowing outside and he, he knew he was going to run, but he needed to either, he had, he was going to go for a run outside or he's got the treadmill. And so he said he, he like, I don't know if he had actually stepped on the treadmill and was looking outside and just basically called himself a little punk and was like, Nope, get, get off the treadmill, get outside, do the hard stuff. And it's like, even that, right? Like I'm already going to do the hard thing. I just need it to be a little harder to try and and build that that level of discomfort. And like you said, you you everybody says it right. Embracing the suck, um, it's it's those quote little things that really help to embrace the suck. When when Kenny leaves and I'm solo by myself for three days, which if I'm honest, I, I did not. Um, there was no transition. It didn't bother me at all. I kind of like the the being silent um, and and by myself. Not, I'm not great like that. So you give me, I think probably four or five days and I start to get those, those high mountain blues, but, and that's, that's even, it comes on even quicker if you're not seeing elk, but, but outside of that, like the, uh, that solo experience, I've noticed a couple of times that I hunt significantly differently. Um, and Kenny and I actually talked about this, like being on the mountain, even though he doesn't have a tag, I feel somewhat responsible for, for being in the elk. Cause he's not, he doesn't, he's not a caller, right? He's, he's kind of an opportunistic hunter. And so when we go for rifle season, um, he doesn't, he doesn't, um, probably move as much as I do and he doesn't call. And so I have this weight on my shoulders. It's like, well, you're up here with a nine point unit. You, you've kind of talked this up. You, you need to be in the elk. So Kenny can see and, and, and enjoy and all that stuff. And, yeah. and he feels the same way. He's telling me, he's like, dude, I feel like, like I, I, I can't hold this guy back. It's his nine point unit. He's worked really hard for this, blah, blah. And so we're both feeling that pressure to try and um, help each other out as much as possible. But then, you know, it's, it's like when he leaves, I'm like, okay, now, 
I, I just feel I love him being there. It was great having your best friend there, but but it's one of those things where a little bit of that pressure was relieved, even though it wasn't anything that was put on me by him. Uh, it was just like like uh, okay, now you can you know if you decide that you want to sit for an extra hour, you sit for an extra hour, or if you decide you want to move, you don't have to worry you know about what what he's thinking and all that stuff. So I don't know if you've ever done any of that. Where oh yeah, that's normal. You feel okay, yeah. It's it's uh, so that transition was pretty good. Um, to, to be in, you know, by myself felt, felt awesome. Uh, the, the, so to get, to get back into the, to the actual elk, there's this like two, two mile long draw. that's pretty stinking steep. There's a Creek in the bottom and, and, um, anyway, it's, uh, we went up there Sunday we went up there a couple of times we were at the top of it and when you get to the bottom of it the two miles down the the ravine it's it's private land and so we're at the top we're hearing tons of bugles and so we decide we're going to stay on the ridge line and move down and so we try and get under them so we would we, we, mark we would move down and get ready to dump in and hear another bugle below us and so we would back back out go down dump back in a few hundred yards and hear another bugle below us. And I'm like, holy crap, there had to be no joke. There had to be throughout that entire draw. I bet there were six bulls within a, a two mile draw on, on one side or the other of this ravine. And they just would not shut up. It was amazing. And so, um, we, we had, uh, my buddy Josh and his wife, Kim showed up on Saturday, like midday. Um, and so we got with them and took them to this place and they were like, they had been hunting a, a different unit that there were just hunters stacked in. And so they hadn't seen anything, hadn't heard anything. And so we get into this draw and now they're, they're, you know, we're glassing the opposite side of this draw. And there's like, by their account, it was like 20 cows with this herd bull on this hillside. And that wasn't even the ones that we were like, we were going after. Um, so we had, Josh and I had dumped in cause he can call. So Josh and I decided to go down which I could see in Kenny's face broke his heart because he was like, dude, does it make sense for all four of us to hike down this hill with the scent and the sound? And I'm like, no, it doesn't, but I want you there. And he's like, tell yourself if it makes sense. And, and so I was like, no, it doesn't make sense. So Josh and I, because Josh can call, go down. And I could see like that little like sad puppy face as I walked away from <laughs> Kenny because he'd been there with me for five days. Uh, it was it was hilarious. Not hilarious. It was heartbreaking, but we, we ended up going down and not killing anything because there were so many sets of eyes on the opposite hillside. Those cows, as much as we tried to stay in the scrub oak, they could see us and they, they ended up boogering before we could get, you know, into, into range. And so, so, uh, but to that point, Josh and Kim were like, I can't believe this. There's so many bugles and the, and the cows are everywhere. And they saw a couple of bulls that were just amazing. And so, um, we knew, we knew where they were, uh, so we backed back out for that night and that's in, ended up being where I, where I'd killed the guy. So after all the pinion pine hunts, I go back, um, back, uh, on an evening hunt to that same, same spot. And I ended up going down, there's a trail that runs the ridgeline that you can actually take a four wheeler, but I, I, I didn't have a four wheeler. I borrowed Kenny's bike, which is embarrassing by the way, the uphill portions of me on a bike, it's, it's, uh. I didn't realize how hard riding a bike was. I haven't ridden a bike since I was like 20. It's, it's stupid. I don't know. Like honestly for death hike training this year, that's all I'm doing is riding a bike. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I used to mountain bike a fair amount, uh, in like high school and college and basically haven't in 
15, you know, 20 years, whatever it's been. <laughs> and then, uh, actually Steve and I went on a mountain bike ride the last spring. And part of the reason I started mountain biking again was I sucked so bad and it was so terrible that I was like, I can't like, this is unacceptable. I can't not be able to ride a bike up a hill, you know? So I can very much relate to that. No, it's, I'm embarrassed is not even the right word. It was seriously embarrassing. Like the, the amount of wind I was sucking, it's a completely different set of, of, uh, like when I was training for the death hike, I was, I was running, I got up to 13 miles. My neighbor came home as I was sitting on the porch, sweating my tail off. And he goes, how far did you run today? I was like 13 miles. He's like, holy crap, 13 miles. 13 miles was nothing compared to like two miles uphill on a bike. I don't know I, the muscle group or whatever it is, but you're exactly right. Going uphill on a bike is it's a completely different game than running. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, we was able to drive, drive the bike down, which was great because it was all downhill and then, you know, trying to ride it back up was terrible. But so I, I, uh, then that, that night I went in or that, that evening I got, I was so excited. I got in early, like four o'clock knowing that the wind wasn't going to be right, but it was a big steep ravine. And so I knew that the wind should be blowing downhill most of the time anyway, with the Creek, you know, being in the, in the bottom of it. Um, so anyway, I waited, I got in, I ended up seeing this guy glassed him up. Um, and they were bugling the entire time. It was three bulls bugling, uh, the whole time. I don't know if you saw, saw a video. I can, I, I posted something on Instagram where you can actually hear, yeah, the videos of you, but you hear them in the background, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it was, it was, it just, I, I get like excited just thinking about it. And, uh, but I knew the wind wasn't right. And so it's funny, I sit there and I'm like, all right, you got to sit for at least another hour before you can get the wind right because you don't want to go in and booger these things and then blow out the entire canyon and lose this spot. So I sat there and, and, uh, you know, six o'clock rolls around and I'm like, okay, well, so maybe it's, maybe it's ready yet. So I take the wind checker out and I'm puffing it like every, every two minutes or whatever. And I'm like, okay, two minutes go by. It's consistent downhill. Good. Two more minutes downhill. Good. All right. It's time to go. And then I puff it again and it blows uphill. And I'm like, golly. So I know I'm like, nope, got to wait another 10. So it ended up being probably like 645. I think I waited. I just sat there on the hillside, listening to him bugle for an hour and 15 minutes, um, waiting for the wind to get right. Uh, and then sure enough, I got, I have two, two that are on my side and, and one, which I think was the, probably the, the quote herd bull of this group on the opposite side. And I had actually, I didn't tell you, I had actually had him, uh, the night before or two, two nights, two nights before, uh, I snuck in on him to, I think I ranged him at 89 yards as he ran after a cow up into the scrub oak. And I was, I was so bummed, dude. I was like that hike in Mark. I was like, I'm shaking because I can hear him. I know where he is. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not talking because he is talking and I'm trying to sneak right. in. And I'm like, you, you know, when you, you like breathe out and you can hear your, your breath, like quiver. It was like, it was like that. Uh, <laughs> and when he finally, you know, kind of showed himself, he was just tearing tail after this cow and never gave me a shot. Um, but, but, uh, I ended up, yeah, for the sake of not blowing anything else out, I ended up backing out of there too, instead of trying to follow him up the hill and, and, and get on, it was, he was running towards private anyway. So, um, so anyway, I didn't want to, to blow anything out of there. Sure enough, wind gets right. And I, uh, start doing these, um, 
Paul Medell calls them the, the pleading cow calls. It's just that real whiny, like, yeah, ah, you know, where he's like, he's like, uh, the cow is like, Hey, you know, come here. She's getting frustrated. I'm here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's requesting an action. And so I did a, a few of those. And every time I would do it, these, these two bulls were ripping off. And one was even closer. The guy that was closer is the one I didn't kill. Um, and so, so they, they're, they're totally responsive to those types of calls. And every now and again, I, so I have in my head, like I've got a call and then move up so that when he comes in, I'm past the spot where he thinks he's going to see me and I can put an arrow in him before he gets to the spot, which, which that's the only thing that's in my head. I'm like, if I don't play this exactly right, it's not going to happen, which is not the way it went at all for the record. Uh, so I, <laughs> I'm doing the, the soft bleeding cow calls and every now and again, so he would bugle back and then he would just shut up and stop and listen. And I was trying to not cow call because I had moved up a little, um, but he would stop. And so he would bugle once and he wouldn't move unless I gave him a response. And so sure enough, I, I hit him with the, some more pleading cow calls and then he'd fire back up and start coming in again. And I, this was me just listening to him. I couldn't see him at the time, but um, finally I, I hit him with that, that contact buzz, which is like, dude, I'm frustrated to get your butt over here. And, and some more of the pleading cow calls. And he was responsive, responsive, responsive. And I, I remember I had ranged, um, I ranged a little tuft of grass down at the Creek, uh, at 40. And then I ranged another one at 30. And so I had it in my head, like there's, there's your shot. If he, if he stops there, he's at 40. If he stops there, he's at 30, anything past that he's at 20. So sure enough, he, he comes right down. He walks right over the 40. And I remember I was at full draw and I'm, I'm walking my bow, keeping my bow on him as he, as he's walking down. And I, I, in my head, I go, okay, there's 40. Okay. There's 30. And after he walked past 30, I was like, okay, anything past here is 20. And, uh, he was just moving super slow. And I didn't even think to, to stop him like with a, a bark or anything. It was just, my pin was on him. The 20 pin was there. And sure enough, I sent it. And uh, I remember the sound of that arrow hitting him was like, not not quite like a drum, but I've never heard, like, I've never heard that impact before where it enters the cavity. And uh, it was such a cool sound, man. Um, and he was still, I didn't know it at the time, but he was still quartering towards me more than what I thought. Um, but that arrow disappeared, which was a really good sign. And so... Uh, I, I finally calmed myself down. I was doing the whole shaking thing uh, and uh, waited a little while to try and go and go, you know, put eyes on, on a blood trail or whatever. And so I, I, it's starting to get darker pretty quick. And so I, I cross the Creek and I'm looking up the Creek and I, I see uh, really good. I got pictures of it. Really good, frothy lung blood. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this guy's done. Um, and now it's it's getting real dark real quick. And so I, by the time I, I put my headlamp on now and I'm still tracking, and it's one of those things where I'm like, all right, just leave him alone, let him die tonight, come back for him in the morning. Um, and then that thing in my head is like, okay, just just find one more piece of blood, one, one more drop of blood. <laughs> and and so I, I you know go up and I find one more, and then I'm like, okay, back out. But then the little devil on my shoulder is like, no, 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 one more. So I go, <laughs> I'm looking for one more. And sure enough, I, as I... I get to this, this, uh, patch of blood and I hear like this ruckus above me and I look up the ridge and 
he uh, up this little little hill and he is standing up staring at me over the over these you know small aspens uh and i my headlamp hits him in the eyes and i'm staring him in the face and he's just looking at me and he doesn't spook he doesn't move and i was like gosh dang it you pushed too hard you dummy and so i immediately drop the headlamp to the ground and i back out slow and i'm like i gotta come back in the morning and so um the, the blood that i saw was so good i i shimmy up the hill uh took me a, a bit to get out because the scrub oak was so daggum thick. I hate, for the record, I hate scrub oak and aspen saplings like oh, with man. a fiery passion. Yeah. Uh, get back to the camper, do a do, do a video that I haven't posted yet where I'm like, oh, I shot him. It's going to be so great. And it's just, you know, this dude with a freaking selfie camera turned on in his own camper just freaking out and saying, <laughs> you know, you know how it is. So excited. And, uh, woke up the next morning knowing that he was going to be dead. Like I knew because the, the blood was, it's just big patches of lung blood. I was like, Oh, he's, he's done to the end that I didn't even, I, I thought to myself, do I even really need to bring the bow? And I, mm-hmm. thankfully I brought the bow, but I thought I was like, God, oh, you won't even need it. He's dead. Brother. I was so excited. I didn't even eat. I got Kyle camp in my head going, oh, I'll just take some gummy bears. Right. So I, <laughs> I dump off the the hillside, get out of the truck, and I had had like a, a handful of gummy bears for lunch. I didn't or for breakfast. I didn't even eat, and it was still, you know, a uh, little dark as I was walking in. So I get back to the same spot that I was in, and I start walking up the hill. And where I saw him the night before, he was no longer there. But I walk up another whatever fifty or hundred yards, and I hear this gurgle, and I I look up the hill, and I'm thinking, oh man, the coyotes are on him. Um, I look up the hill. And sure enough, he stands up and he's staring at me. And I was like, I could not believe he was still alive. Um, and so he turns and it wasn't like a full on like booger. Like he didn't, he didn't run hard, but he, he moved at a pretty good clip. But the one thing that was encouraging is that he refused to move uphill. He would not. So he stayed on the trail right next to the, to the Creek. And, uh, so I had, I had a chance to, to knock an arrow when I very first saw him, but I couldn't come to full draw in time before he had turned and moved. Um, so I just dogged him for whatever, 100 yards, 200 yards. And uh, finally, after seeing him two more times, he had stopped and was on the trail, but completely facing away from me. And uh, I walked up on him and had to reposition myself slightly down by the creek. So I, he still hadn't looked back. He hadn't heard me. You could tell he was he was stung pretty darn hard um which i i hated to see but but uh anyway he he stopped and he gave me he stood there gave me a 40 yard shot so i made sure to, to range him got it came to full draw nice and slow put the 40 pin on him and put it on his left side right behind the ribs and sent it um and then he dude when i when that arrow the second arrow went into him he, he actually like turned and looked at me and like peered into my soul uh as, as that that second arrow went in and um as he saw me he moved up the the creek a little ways and and i actually had enough time to take my phone out because he started getting the drunk legs where he's kind of wobbly and i took the phone out and hit the camera and got video of him like standing there for about a second and a half and then finally toppling over into the creek um which i actually haven't haven't posted it yet but it's it's amazing and uh he falls over this tree, moves the entire tree, and dumps into the creek. And I remember, wow, uh, 
he died in the water. He So when I walked up on him, he still wasn't quite there. And I remember like, I'm talking to him out loud. I'm like, buddy, please, please get up. Please, please get up and take two steps out of the Creek, please. And he was just like, he was not having it. He just, he, he couldn't do it. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm so thankful and so blessed for that animal. Uh, yeah, he ended up expiring right there in the Creek after, after all of that. But I'm just so baffled at how stinking tough they are. He lived on as much as I don't like to say it, my, he lived on one lung the entire night. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know how it actually happened, but I found the first five inches of arrow and broadhead in his back left. Um, yeah, back left uh, haunch in his, his back left quarter when the arrow went in the front right quarter. And then I don't know if it hit a rib or glanced off the shoulder blade or what, but went in the back left quarter. I, I was, I was amazed that it had zipped almost all the way through him. Um, and he lived the entire night like that. And then, and then that second shot was the one that, that, you know, obviously punched the second lung and was able to put him down. But it was, I, it was, it was like nothing I've ever experienced. It was unbelievable. I'm, I'm super grateful, but also like, you know, and I think you do this too. I know, I know a lot of guys do this. Like, what could I have done better? What, you know, could I have, mm. should I have waited another five seconds um, and then maybe not had him quartering as hard? But then I'm in my head, like going, okay, well, well, if you'd have waited five seconds, maybe he would have turned and looked at you and boogered. You don't, you just don't, you don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all those things going through my head, but I, there's always that, that one thing that's like, what, what could you have done better? So anyway, for whatever that's worth, it's just, yeah, that's when he, he went down and dumped in the creek and, uh, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And then it was like go time, just. I, it was warm out. The, the temperature had been like 80 degrees, although I was pretty safe because, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was pretty safe because the creek was down there. It's in a pretty steep place where the sun only gets direct, direct, you know, on that spot. Very yeah, for short time. Very small percentage of the day. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was just time to go to work. And I, it's funny because I'm like, I'm 190 pounds ish. And I'm like, okay, well, I know you're, you're not gonna be able to move this thing, but you got to try because he's in the water. So I grabbed this guy by his antlers and there's nothing doing like, I, it's just, it was stupid of me to even just try right. like, I, I got to give it a shot. Right. So yeah. I couldn't even, I could not move him out of the water until I had gotten three quarters off of him. And then uh, I was able to move him to get that final quarter off. But um, yeah, it was just time to, time to go to work. And it was one of those things where you're like, you're like, uh, I've done it a bunch of times and I really actually enjoy the breakdown process. Um, but, but I've not done it solo. So I'm super thankful. I had some paracord and there was one tree where I could tie off his first quarter, but that was the only place that I could use that paracord. You couldn't use it on any other, there was no other trees around to be able to use it. And it was more of like a dude, you're just going to have to muscle this thing as best you yeah. can. And so, so first quarter came off was awesome. Uh, but yeah, the rest of it was just like, holy crap. I mean, trying to, trying to move it all, you know, by yourself was, was good. I actually ended up, I had, I had one of those, um, not Havilon, the outdoor edge knives, which I really like because mm -hmm. I, I'm not great at, I know you're, you're in a fixed blade. I know. It, it, and I ended up using a fixed blade most of the time because my outdoor edge, I had set it down on a the plastic bag that I had set down so I could set the meat on it. 
and I ended up, bottom line, kicking the plastic bag, getting pissed off at it, and then shucking the bag away from me, which I forgot had my knife on it. And so, yeah. so I ended up, I had a fixed blade, oddly enough, that showed up. This is how kind our customers are. I mean, I had a, a customer send me a fixed blade, uh, like a really nice, um, it's one of the Benchmade hunting knives out of the blue with the ivory logo on it. It showed up the day before I left for the hunt. Like, Oh my gosh. How cool. Yeah, with no, no explanation. It just said, Hey, remember it's a gift. Um, blessings. That was it. And uh, that's amazing. No signature, no nothing. I've since found out who it is, but it was, yeah. So I ended up using this thing to, to do the rest of the elk with, um, it was just so awesome. It was just, I'm, I'm the most, the most blessed guy on the planet. Truly. Uh, yeah. I, I don't want to keep keep babbling. Uh, no, you're good, man. Yeah, I've done that with knives. Like, where you either I've never lost one, but I've done the stupid thing of like, where did I set that? And now I'm like breaking down an animal. I'm like, I don't want to step on it. I don't want to grab it. So, I definitely have learned by terrible decisions. Like, <laughs> if I'm working on an animal. It's either I keep well to depends which knife I'm using. Like it's in the sheath and either around my neck or in the pocket. But if I like even for a moment, I'm gonna like set down a knife and not sheath it. I just it sounds graphic, but I just basically shove it somewhere in the animal, right? Um, I never set it on the ground or on a game bag or anything like that because I've done that in the past and and made mistakes. So I just pretty much like it's either safe and on my body or it's pretty much on the animal's body. That's super, super smart. I will absolutely. So the that number one, I'll be doing that in the future. But number two, I think my second takeaway is don't ever buy a black knife for hunting, <laughs> yeah. or or a blue knife. Orange is the only color that any hunting knife should ever be in. It does make a difference, man. Especially like the bull I just killed in Idaho. We were breaking it down at night, and you you begin to realize with multiple things like man, I'm glad my inReach is orange or my knife is orange or those little things. It's not always like, I'm not a flashy guy. I don't like colors, but then you find situations where it's like, oh man, I'm glad that sucker is visible. Yeah, for sure. There's, I got my, my arrows, I fletch them in pink. Uh, and it's all because a buddy of mine who worked at the archery shop was like, dude, what do you know that's in nature that's pink? I'm like, nothing. He's like, exactly. Like you yeah. can find your arrow. If you, you, you know, you fletch it in camo fletching in your hose, that thing's gone. So Yeah. Yeah, it makes a big difference. You're yeah. right. Was it a front or rear quarter that you were able to tie off? The rear, thankfully. Oh, that's good. Oh, it was so good. And I, I didn't, I'd never use. I mean, never packed one out solo before. But I, I don't know that I ever would have thought of that until I heard somebody say it on one of the podcasts about taking paracord and being able to tie it off on a tree. And I was like, that is genius. So my kill kit now has a bunch of paracord in it, and. Uh, it was it was it was a godsend because I f- I did fight with it for a second just trying to muscle it and it was mm-hmm. just dumb it was dumb it was like <laughs> you you just that whole thing you would laugh just with me you know trying to f- fight this you know I don't know how many pounds he was a freaking heavy man like rear quarters of a you know decently mature bull are just heavy. They were, and they were, they were the, those were the hardest to, to pack out too, was those two, the two rears. I've never shot a bull this big. He was, well, I packed a, a lot of elk off mountains, but, and I didn't realize how big he was until I actually got the skull home. 
and put him up next to the other six by six, and it's not even close. Like he he dwarfs everything I have on the wall right now. Really? Uh, yeah, it's just I mean mass wise, number one. Yeah, like his he's so much thicker, and so I was like, man, that's why those behind quarters felt so stinking heavy because yeah. they were. And so yeah, just uh, and I don't think it helped because I I had you know the only thing I had was like uh, gummy bears, and so I was just like wolfing down i didn't have anything substantial that day which i was a huge mistake like i packed out the so it took me which i don't know how embarrassing it is to say i'm pretty proud but it took me about four i want to say four and a half hours to get them broken down and into game bags and you know get the the basically from the knee down off of him all that stuff which i know there are guys that can do it in like whatever 20 minutes but i'm not one and so i wanted to make sure that do my due diligence specifically around the backstraps, tenderloins, all that stuff. I hate hacking that stuff up to where it's all yeah. mangled and gnarly. So I take my time on a lot of that stuff, but but it took about four hours, four and a half hours to get them broken down, if I remember the timing right. And then those I, I went out with one load the first hind quarter and then came back in. Uh and now that I'm thinking about it, I didn't have any I didn't have ice. That's that's what I did. That's why it took so long. So I, I went out with the first quarter, went into this little shop in town real quick, bought as much ice as I could buy, threw it in the cooler, drove back up, dumped back in, picked up the other hind and and came out. And I think it was probably 530 when I, when I ended up out with the second hind, but I'm running on gummy bears. And I think I might have taken some of those little cheese crackers and that was it for the day. Oh, man. And, uh, it was it was not good. It and I was just, it was excitement and not thinking. And so the entire day, all I'd had was that sugar and that little, little, you know, bit of carbs. And I think the the thing that was most telling about that is that the next day when I packed out the rest was so much better because I had woken up, I'd had a, a solid breakfast and, and then, you know, try to keep the, the gummy bears going throughout the, the entire time of the pack out. But, but dude, it's, it's, uh, for for the heavy, you might I might be able to you know run whatever, thirteen miles on a handful of gummy bears and some Gatorade, but not with two loads of eighty pounds on my back or whatever it was. Uh, gummy bears are just not enough. So you basically got both rear quarters out, essentially the first day of packing meat, and then was able to finish up the second day. Yeah, exactly. Went back, and I thought because he was, I had put the. Uh, all the scrap meat, like neck meat, back straps, tenderloins, I put those in with the, the front quarter bags, um, which made them obviously significantly heavier. But so I was thinking to myself, I had five trips, the two two rears and then two fronts with each side's worth of, of scrap meat that I did not. Um, anyway, bottom line, I got and then I had to come back in for the head. So I was like, there's going to be five trips. And so I I went down there and I was like, well, maybe maybe just try it like throw those two fronts on there yeah. you have a little video clip of this i saw i love it yeah it was dude i was i was like i honestly didn't know and then i it was one of those things where you see in the videos like guys will like sit down to put their pack on and then they roll over like a like a beached whale and then kind of hoist themselves up from their bellies it was like that so i put those two quarters on the on the uh pack and and got it all cinched down super nice and tight uh to where they were not moving at all. Man, I, I don't know if you've, I know you have used like, in the past we used the old like Boy Scout frame where you had to 
basically use paracord to cinch your meat down to it and it sloshes with every step back and forth side to side and kind of throws you off balance but the uh the the lashing straps to be able to lash that thing as tight as you can to the to the frame um to where it's not sloshing around and loose is it's it's such a massive difference so so that is super helpful and i also found out where i'm going to put those because the k4 comes with those locking buckles mm-hmm. i'm definitely putting those on on the you know the frame straps where it straps the the meat to the frame mm-hmm. under the bag i'm putting one there for sure it was it was so nice not that it moved but i'm like I, when i put the head on the it was just the strap came over the snout to the point where the buckle was right on the snout. And I was thinking to myself, like, like it wouldn't tighten up because it was, it was basically at the buckle was being pulled at a, at the wrong angle until I slid the buckle to the right side of the snout and then stitched it down super tight. But, but it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, if I'm going to put the the locking buckle on, I'm going to put it on the, the, you know, the meat, the meat loaders or whatever, but yeah, for whatever that's worth, that's that those locking buckles are um, not a necessity, but, but uh, I think they'll be, if, especially if you were using like, um, if you bone it out, I don't know if you bone out your stuff or if you go bone in most most of the time. But if I go boned out, I think uh, the ability to have it not slosh around is going to be critical. But I've never never been on a pack out so far in that I haven't had to, uh, I mean, I have had to bone it out. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I can see the value there. Yeah. So you did both front quarters plus the loose meat on one load yeah it's freaking solid dude that's heavy it was it was heavy yeah it it was awesome man i i uh i take so to full disclosure one of the tenderloins i had taken up in one of the big game bags so there was one disclosure you took a whole yeah yeah, 14 (laughs) ounces out of that yeah right uh so so yeah strapped it on i was like oh dude you can you can do this like it, it sucked right but i was like oh you're you're gonna be okay that's a so, solid load yeah yeah it was good climbing up the hill uh and i had i had done a like i tracked my route on the way in from the truck down to the meat i had tracked my route so i knew which way to go to get the least amount of resistance from the saplings and the and the um scrub oak mm-hmm. um which worked really well because i was watching on x the whole time and and that got me out to the point where i wasn't you know like absolutely furious at myself um except for on the head i was so excited it was the last load i threw the head on i'm walking out and sure enough i stop looking at my map and i'm like i end up going straight into this like uh aspen grove and and i don't i go i go straight into the aspen grove and, and like I get to a point where I'm like, all right, you're just going to, now I'm pissed and I'm going to, I'm just going to barrel through, just do it. And so I start walking up and the rack is so wide that I hit these two Aspens, like a doorway and the rack just stopped on the, on the Aspens. And I, and now I'm, I'm livid. Uh, and I don't talk to myself when I'm by myself, like ever, but I was talking to myself out loud that day. I was, I'm like, I'm like literally out loud in the conversations, like you jackass now you're gonna have to to drop back down another 50 yards to get out of these trees and then you're gonna have to go left and you and when you go side hill for the next 100 yards and then you go back up the same steep hill you came in and then there's the other guy on so it's a conversation it's a weird like two-way conversation (laughs) with your personalities oh dude it was funny the other guy is like 
bro, like, take it easy. You're, you got nowhere to be. <laughs> like, you got the last load out. It's all on ice. So it takes you an extra 20 minutes. Calm down. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there's that, that like internal battle, but that was all out loud. And then I was like, dude, you're probably, you probably won't even remember this at the end. You're never going to tell anybody about this and you're, you're not even going to remember it. I'm saying those things out loud to myself. It's so freaking funny. That is funny. Yeah. yeah I'm the that. same way, man. When like, especially when it's the last load, right? You've already done a bunch of work. You're tired and now you're packing out like this awkward rack and getting hung up on stuff and all that. Like we're just on my elk hunt uh, last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was was doing the same thing and like struggling through this real thick section and you know steve's just laughing at me right because he has a heavy pack but he doesn't have to do with the rack yeah and i'm just like back there yelling at myself and he's like oh, i mean it's one of the benefits of shooting small stuff you know <laughs> just giving me trouble yeah no it's good it's good and it's funny because i sit here and say that and we're like oh boo freaking who like i gotta i gotta worry about the rack hitting pack trees. out my white elk rack Right. When, when there's 95% of other dudes aren't packing out that, you know, that same time of year. And so like, you know, I feel so, so sorry for myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sweet misery. Yep. Super good stuff. Man, that's such a cool story. I just love, you know, that you got the opportunity, the days in the field to share it with people and have all the bugling action and see elk, but then had the solo aspect of it. Like it's just a, you jammed a lot of awesome experiences into the trip. And obviously I'm always this way, but that's what it's about for me. Cause like when you, when you look at that, I know you did a Euro, when you look at that Euro in the future, it's not just like, Oh, that's that elk I killed. It's like, that's the trigger to remember all the memories, all the highs and lows, like the people who were there, the fact that you ended up doing it. So like all of that comes back when you then, have that elk to look at in the future 100 percent. it's it's i i've thought of that exact what you just said i've thought of that exactly like a lot of times like there i know there are people that are out there they're like you guys are trophy hunters and you just want to kill and put big racks on the wall and what they don't get is exactly what you just said that that is not it's not just bones on the wall that is every every antler i have on the wall is a memory that's tied to that experience and who was there and what went on and how hard it was and all of that stuff. It's it's legitimately looking at a memory yeah. when you look at it. You're 100% right. Oh, man. What other, anything we didn't hit in terms of takeaways, whether that's lessons learned, things that worked great, gear, like just wide open, like anything else that we did. I feel like we covered a ton, so don't feel like you have to add to it, but I want to make sure we're not like leaving something on the table. No, I think, I think, I mean, there's stuff, for me personally, like trying to, trying to be better about waiting my, and I've, I've been bad about this in the past, waiting for the shot. Um, because as soon as I see the elk and I know it's not just me, but it's man, it's, it's prevalent that whole, and it doesn't matter if it's a rifle or a bow, everything in me says, go, go, go. He's going to get away. He's going to get away. I mean, and it happens fast. Like it's almost like I can hear myself going, you got to shoot now. You got to shoot now. And I have to really consciously try and slow myself down uh, ahead of time because, because that just, that just, and I've shot, you know, a couple of bulls in the shoulder blades because of that exact, that exact like drive, which if I'm honest, you always have more time than you think you do. And even if mm -hmm. you don't, 
you can still bark and stop them, right? So like I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. Last year's last year's bull with the rifle was the first time I was actually pretty darn calm, and I think it was because I had barked. I had to bark at him twice because he was tearing tail downhill, and I barked at him twice, and that's when he stopped. And just like Paul says, he Paul Medell says he will, right? He he stops and he looks at you. Um, that was the first time that I was actually calm enough to go, okay, take your time, squeeze it off. Don't, don't slap it, squeeze it. Right. And, and so, uh, I got to really work. So the takeaway for, for me is just, just working on actively controlling my brain in those high stress situations where it's like, I need to make that a part of my, my normal shooting routine, which is, I know a lot of people say they have a mantra before they shoot, like squeeze or hold or sight on whatever it is you tell yourself mm-hmm. out loud. I've got to really work on doing that, but that's the the main takeaway uh, for me. I think is just I I I owe it to that that creature to to try and put the best shot on it as, as I possibly can. Uh, and so I got to try and override that panic that goes on in my head when. And it's funny to me because there's some guys that don't get that. They don't seem to get that at all. Like I've talked to a lot of guys. I'm like, do you do you get all jacked up? And they're like, some guys are like, well, I get. I get super jacked up, but it's only after the shot. And then they start to shake uncontrollably and stuff like that. And I'm like, after the shot, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Some guys are just super cool, but I'm not one of them. So that I think that's probably my main takeaway. Yeah, that's really, really good stuff. I think what you just said, though, those are somewhat connected. Urgency is tied to a, like a manifestation of anxiety because you feel that pressure of like this moment's going away this moment's going away versus i think if you've at least in my experiences i because i've been there um sometimes still am but i will say especially over the last handful of years have been able to be more patient more calm and just remind myself like i have more time than i think and i think as you begin to take that time you naturally are calmer about the entire experience right um I can't think of a like a moment and definitely in the last two or three years where I've been jacked up before the shot. And I think part of it is me over time learning to take it slower, knowing I have more time like that immediately like lowers my anxiety level because I very much relate to what you're saying when you feel like there's the animal I have to shoot. I have to shoot now. Like that builds that anxiety that builds that excitement. Um, whereas it's like, Oh, there's the animal. Let me get set up to shoot. Let me make sure this is good. Like it's just as a totally different experience. And I don't think it's an easy switch to flip, but I would just say that as you force yourself to slow down, I think you'll naturally have like a little bit less nerves about the whole thing too. Do you, is there something that you did to try and flip that switch? Is there like a, a mantra or? No, I think it's exactly what you just said. Or... It's being aware of it, right? Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I 100% relate to everything you said. And then just realizing, all right, I have to force myself to slow down. I have to remind myself I have more time than I think I do. Um, yeah, things like that. So, and it's, you know, there's still situations like, if it's super close or, you know, the like 
archery elk's freaking it's different than a lot of other things too so i'm not saying this only about archery elk it's much easier to get like super jacked up when you have a bullet 20 yards and you've been hearing them screaming and all that stuff versus some of the examples i'm talking about have been rifle shots that it's a calm animal they're unaware of your presence they're not screaming in your face they're not at 20 yards right so some of it is (laughs) hypocritical of me to say like oh it's easy to be calm because it's it's different contexts but i still think the principle is true of like if you can force yourself to slow down you're gonna find yourself a little bit calmer just in general i'm not saying all the butterflies won't go away you won't be jacked up etc but i yeah i think they go hand in hand a bit yeah I think to your point with the rifle, there's some there's value in in numbers too, right? And the number of LP. So after, after maybe maybe after you've killed eight, ten, twenty bulls or whatever, you're maybe you just naturally, whether it's rifle or or bow, you just naturally tend to calm down. I can't imagine like like these guys like Corey Jacobson and Paul Medell and these guys that just they don't walk out their front door without killing out probably don't even get nervous anymore right like yeah they just yeah walk out oh there's one and they wait for it to get into position and send it and then pull the truck up but <laughs> but uh i'm not i'm not there yet but we will i will yeah it's it's to your point i, I think you're exactly right knowing it <clears throat> excuse me knowing it beforehand and then being able to even even a day before go okay calm down yeah. That's what I told Kenny. Kenny, when he came up, he's like, what do you want me to do? I'm like, what? you just be here to help with the pack. And then if you're with me, when I come to full draw, I just need you to whisper in my ear, the word settle, just settle. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't, the last couple of times I didn't settle my pin and it, it, it totally posed me. Um, so just that whole like, uh, verbal thing that goes settle, 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 right. To where I can mm-hmm. override the anxiety and so yeah, it's it's uh it's a work in progress. It'll be fun to see what happens, you know, the next time we got that we got a rifle hunt with my my boy coming up and I'll I'll be really interested to see what what happens if we end up being able to put him on a bull. Um and I got a cow tag for that season too. So uh That's awesome, man. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Well, thanks for the time. It's uh fun to hear the story of the hunt, fun to hear about Ivory. Um Obviously, don't want to let you go without people being able to hear about where to check out your stuff and all that good, uh, good fun. Not only I would say holsters, I will say <laughs> I'm, I'm not like super into social media. I generally don't have Instagram on my phone, but I'll check it like for my computer. And <laughs> every time I see you post something, I'm like, "Ooh, I'll check this out." You're you're just oh. a funny dude. Um, so I would say, even if you don't generally like following people on Instagram, you're worthy of a follow, Gabriel. Uh, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. There's a, some folks don't, don't get my sense of humor, which is, <laughs> it's funny because it makes me want to ramp it up even more. I had, I, I, so for real quick, I had this, I had one video a couple of years ago, like these elk hunting pro tips. And the, 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 basically the tip was when you find a fresh elk scat, you pick up one nugget and put it in your mouth and it'll tell you which direction they went. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's like, most of the comments are like, Oh my gosh, that's so funny. And, and, uh, there's one guy on there that's like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, yes, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's meant to be idiotic. It's like, it's like watching dumb and dumber. You're not watching it because the content is amazing. You're watching it to laugh. It's just funny. So, so when you say that, I'm like, all right, somebody gets it. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Is it just ivory holsters on Instagram? 
Yeah. Yep. There is. Yeah. There's one clown I think that tried to clone the account. It, so if there's an, it's strictly just ivory holsters. If there's anything like an underscore or anything like that, that's not us. Um, okay. But yeah. Yep. And website is just ivoryholsters.com. You got it. Yeah. Perfect. And then I'll. I'll uh, yeah, I'm. I'm so excited about that release holster, man. I can't wait to get one in your hands and and uh, those will those will be up hopefully within the next two or three weeks. But but uh, yeah, it's really targeting toward the archery specific industry is kind of kind of exciting to me so yeah keep an eye out for that cool i'll leave links to everything in the show description and thanks again man mark you're amazing man i really appreciate you thanks so much well what a story thanks gabriel for sharing it with us once again for you guys listening check out the links in the show description to get in contact with gabriel or follow him on instagram or check out the holster offerings that he has on his website. If you have any questions for us, reach out, send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. We would love to hear from you, whether you have a hunting story, a guest or topic suggestion for a future podcast, or anything like that. As always, if you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you can leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using, or just send it directly to a friend that may enjoy the show as well. We appreciate you guys doing that and your support of the show. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.